Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Hey everyone, it's Katie Couric, and I want to tell you about one of my new favorite podcasts. It's called A Really Good Cry with the amazing Roddy Devlukia, a plant-based chef, entrepreneur, and now a podcast host who will guide you through a journey of self-discovery, one tear at a time. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Roddy Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin, And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The men have a small hill event, a big hill event, and a team event. So they have three chances for medals. And we were just asking for one. Hi, everyone. Today I'm bringing you something a little different because this winter I'm doing something a little different. I'm super excited to be reporting on the 2018 Olympic Winter Games for NBC. I was sent all the way to Pyeongchang, South Korea, to co-host the opening ceremony. Did you see it? Did you like it? Anyways, because there are so many interesting stories coming out of the 2018 Games, I knew I wanted to share at least one of them with you on our podcast. So I teamed up with another podcast called The Podium. It's the official podcast of the Olympic Winter Games from NBC Sports and Vox Media, And hey, just a little slice of the Katie Couric podcast for good measure. Now, by design, this is an episode of Olympic Proportions. It's also the latest chapter in our Wonder Women series. So in that big league spirit, we're not highlighting just one woman this week, but an entire team, the American women's ski jumping team, that is. These amazing athletes have had to fight for recognition and resources. So, with a hat tip to our friends over at the Podium Podcast, here's the story of the scrappy, resilient U.S. women's ski jumping team. This week, women from around the world soared above the crowd at the Alpensia Ski Jumping Center. This is just the second time in Olympic history that women could compete in ski jumping. The first was in 2014. Getting the women's event into the Olympics took a lot of work and not just physical training. Men have competed in Olympic ski jumping since the international competition began way back in 1924. And the International Ski Federation started sponsoring additional competitions for them the following year. Women had to wait for nearly 80 years until 2003. That's when the International Ski Federation finally sponsored their first women's ski jumping competition. The worldwide spotlight raised the profile of their sport, and women hoped that would give them a shot to compete at the 2010 Winter Games in Vancouver. 
all the girls got together, and we were at my house. That's Jessica Jerome. In 2006, she was 19 years old. She'd been competing in ski jumping for years, but not at the Olympic Games. We called into this conference call, and it was at night because it was in the morning in Europe. And they said that it was not going to be considered. And we, we were pissed. Jerome grew up in Park City, Utah. When a ski jumping club came to her elementary school, she begged her parents to let her sign up. Initially, my dad was not having it. He remembered the agony of defeat in the wide world of sports. For you youngins out there, that was a sports broadcast that aired regularly on ABC. It's this awful clip of a guy crashing on a ski jump. Vinko Bogataz, the Yugoslavian, the youngster, is inexperienced. He fell on his first jump. A lot of speed in that track. Now, look, look, out! look at him go! Oh! Oh, baby! What a terrible fall! And so he said, there's no way I'm letting my daughter do that. And my mom was like, hold up. This is, this is a great opportunity to get them involved in the local community, and it's cheaper than babysitting, so let's do it. Her mom won out, and Jerome fell in love with the sport. She got really close to her teammates. From the beginning, her club included boys and girls, all training together. We were on the hill together. We were in the gym together. We were doing field exercises and plyometrics together. We had the same coaches. We, we all did everything together. But that changed when Jerome started competing. Her male counterparts just had more opportunities. There were all these levels of international competition for men. So the way the competitions work in ski jumping is the highest level is obviously the Olympics, but there is a World Cup circuit that goes on every year. And then there were a bunch of competitions for less experienced male jumpers. But for women, there was just one international competition. It was just the only opportunity we had to compete against women from other countries. But to get to that one competition, Jerome and her teammates had to overcome another obstacle, funding. The boys got to focus on training, but the girls were scrambling to fundraise and ask for donations. Everything was coming out of pocket from either ourselves or our parents or donations. To try to cut costs, my father is an airline pilot, so I had flight benefits. He did, my my mom did, and then we would give my teammates buddy passes, and we would fly standby to competitions in Europe, which is not ideal because they're there was an instance where we were stuck in the Munich airport for five days because we couldn't get home, but it was the cheapest way that we could do it. The standby flights saved the team a lot of money, but they also caused some problems because when you fly standby... Your baggage is not a priority. So when we would fly with our skis, if anything happened to our skis or any of our bags or our equipment, it was gone. Jerome remembers this one competition in Slovenia when she and her teammates were left in a tough spot. Between the American girls, we were all missing something. So I was missing a bag with my skis and my suit. A teammate of mine was missing a bag with her boots and her helmet. And we got together with the girls from the other countries, 
and they all loaned us stuff, and we ended up being able to compete. In almost any other sport, this would be crazy. Think about it. The American team was going to their rivals and asking for help before a major competition. But Jerome says this was the norm in women's ski jumping. They had a larger purpose. They all wanted the sport to succeed. We had this mindset within women's ski jumping, despite being competitive with these other countries, we were all friends and we were all always trying to help each other out because we all had one common goal, which was growing the sport and being recognized to be in the Olympics. And we knew that if, for example, the Norwegian girls couldn't compete that weekend, it looked bad across the whole sport. It wasn't about personal results. Part of trying to get this sport into the Olympics is there needs to be more competitors and there needs to be growth. So even still today, I see this camaraderie among women's ski jumpers that I have never seen in any other sport. It might seem obvious why athletes would want their events in the Olympics, right? The medals, the glory, the chance to represent their country. But it can mean much more than that. Going to the Olympics gives athletes all these other opportunities for sponsorship. So getting women ski jumping into the games would mean that Jerome could concentrate on training instead of fundraising. Jerome and her teammates hoped their sacrifices would pay off for the 2010 games. But when the International Olympic Committee announced the new events for that year, women's ski jumping was not among them. We weren't asking for something that was ridiculous and would have cost millions of dollars. The venues were there. The ski jumps were built. The events for men, they were happening. And we just wanted one day where we could have our event as well. The women decided to take their case to court. The Winter Games were in Vancouver that year, so their case ended up before a panel of judges in British Columbia. We were in Vancouver within 10 days of the beginning of our winter competition season. So while everybody was at home training and getting ready to compete, we were sitting in court. And at the time, I was really annoyed about it because I wanted the luxury of just being an athlete and focusing on being the best at ski jumping that I could be. I didn't want to have to deal with all this other stuff. And I was very envious of people in other sports who could just do that. They could just focus on what they needed to do, and, and they didn't have to be involved in the politics of everything. The Canadian court actually ruled in the women's favor, sort of. The judge agreed that having the ski jumping competition for men and not women was discriminatory. But the judge also decided that Canada didn't have jurisdiction over the International Olympics Committee. The court couldn't tell the IOC what to do. Jerome and her teammates had to wait and see if the IOC would change its mind for the next Winter Olympics. So on April 6, 2011, they gathered together to listen in on another conference call to see if they'd get their shot in Sochi. Sarah Hendrickson was there. At just 16 years old, she was a rising star in women's ski jumping, and she knew her older teammates had been through a lot to get her sport to that point. You know, we could feel the tension in the air just because they had been 
told no so many times. So you could almost feel that they were just expecting that. Like they were never really getting their hopes up anymore because they'd been shut down so many times. When they started to announce the new sports that would be added into Sochi and heard women ski jumping, I mean, it was just, I think it was relief more than anything just to finally see that green light. Jerome was actually away from her teammates that day. I was in Thailand in an internet cafe, and I didn't deliberately plan this vacation over this time, but it worked out that way, and I wasn't upset about it. And I went to this internet cafe, and I called in, and I listened, and they said the following sports will be added to the 2014 program, and they said women's ski jumping, and... I smiled, and I hung up, and then I went about my day because it wasn't like this huge moment for me where I thought, okay, it's finally done. It was like, all right, it, it's about time. Jerome and her teammates had done it. Women's ski jumping would be part of the Winter Games. But then Jerome still had to make the team. More on that in a moment. We'll be right back after this word from our sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Katie Couric, and I want to tell you about one of my new favorite podcasts. It's called A Really Good Cry with the amazing Roddy Devlukia, a plant-based chef, entrepreneur, and now a podcast host who will guide you through a journey of self-discovery one tear at a time. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Roddy Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
And now back to Jessica Jerome and her Olympic dreams. We had Olympic trials in Park City at the end of December. And it was a made-for-TV event that the Americans did. And we had a competition for men and women. And it was winner gets an automatic spot in the Olympics. And I won. It didn't really sink in. And I think a couple days later, you know, I was probably driving or I was in the shower doing some mundane task. And I went, oh, my God, I'm going to the Olympics. Jerome came in 10th in Sochi. She didn't medal, but she did leave a much bigger legacy for her younger teammates, like Sarah Hendrickson. I'm just so overly thankful for those older girls. Hendrickson competed with Jerome in Sochi, and she's representing Team USA once again here in Pyeongchang. I was really fortunate with my age and my timing and everything coming together perfectly that I almost, I don't want to say guilty, but... I guess there's a little bit of guilt that it's like I took something away from them that they put so much work into. So I'm religious in saying that I'm so thankful for those girls because they are the ones that, you know, paved the way for me. And um, that's why I take pride in pushing the sport even further so that girls behind me can practice more on the hill rather than focusing on the politics side of things. But Hendrickson says there are still some battles to fight. Now it's kind of hitting me harder how frustrating it is. Like, our prize money is 33% of men right now, and they actually have more competitions than us. And that differential is pretty substantial. And, you know, we train just as hard as them. And, you know, it's not our fault that we were born female. Hendrickson will have plenty of help in the fight. Jessica Jerome says that when she started competing back in 2002, there were just a few dozen young women from across the world competing in ski jumping. Today, in the U.S. alone, right now, there are about 25 girls who are eligible to compete in international events. At a club level, there's something like 220 now, and that's that's from Park City to Steamboat to Lake Placid and all throughout the Midwest and even Alaska. And I remember growing up and my idols in the sport were all men. And recently, there's this new wave of young women coming up into the sport, and they say things like, when I was a kid, I idolized Daniela Arashko, or I idolized Annette Sagan. And I just think it's so cool that these young women who are starting ski jumping have the option. They have girls and guys to look up to. That's really cool to me. For our second and final chapter today, I sat down with Karen Krauss and Pyong Chang. Karen is a New York Times reporter who covers sports, and she's out with a new book about how Norwich, a tiny Vermont town that is thought to have produced more Winter Olympians per capita than anywhere else in America, has done it. So when Karen and I sat down in this beautiful library that's part of the hotel I'm staying in, in Pyeongchang, the first question I asked her was, how did she find this town of Norwich? How did she discover this story? 
So I was at the Sochi Olympics four years ago, and I got a random reader email saying, I noticed you're covering the Olympics. You should check out Hannah Carney's story. She's from the small town in Vermont that is an Olympic pipeline. Hannah is the most successful in the conventional sense of all the Norwich Olympians, of which there are 11, by the way, in this town of 3,000. She won the gold in the women's moguls in 2010 and then the bronze in defense of that title in Sochi. And so that was how it started through just a reader email. And when I went to the town and started interviewing people, what became apparent I understood without knowing really anything about Vermont, actually, the athletic piece of it, because I grew up in Santa Clara in the 70s when it was the epicenter of swimming in not only the United States, but the whole world. And so I understood how when you have one or two or three really exceptional performers, they can light a fire under an entire community and get a lot of people inspired and involved. So that piece, I sort of could understand. What I didn't expect was the parenting piece, because what I found with these parents, and it was so heartening for me because I've become a little disillusioned by how much money is just permeated every aspect of sports, not even at just the Olympic level, but all the way down to the youth level, that it was nice to find this community where the parents seem to see the bigger picture and pay more than lip service to it. So they get their kids in sports and they almost become Olympians by accident. Before I hear more about sort of the parenting philosophy, and I really think it's a community-wide philosophy. It's not just fathers and mothers, but it seems to me that it takes a village, as Hillary Clinton would say, to create these athletes who are really, you know, stellar individuals as well. But tell me a little bit, before we talk about the philosophy of Norwich, tell me a little bit about the demographics, where the town sits, you know, who lives there, et cetera. So it's one of the more affluent cities in Vermont. It's across the Connecticut River from Dartmouth, which is another huge piece of it because it's been able to make use of Dartmouth's resources, its facilities, its excellent coaches. The kids who play sports at Dartmouth will volunteer in the community. But it's interesting because for all of its affluence, Norwich has this communitarian spirit and this generosity of spirit and this feeling that your child is my child and one child's success is everyone's success. And when I was talking to social scientists about that, they said, you know, it's really quite extraordinary for a town that is affluent to have that because when you get a measure of wealth, you tend to become more isolated. You are behind um, gated communities and maybe you are giving your children private lessons so they're not in and around their peers. Maybe you're taking them out of local schools and putting them elsewhere. So the social scientists I talked to said, this is really actually amazing that this town, as it's outgrown its agrarian roots, has been able to maintain the agrarian ethos of, you know, we're all in this together. What do people in Norwich do for a living? So when the first Olympian, Betsy Snipe, came along in the 50s, they were mostly farmers. And 
it has since changed where the people in Hanover will refer to Norwich as the bedroom community for Hanover, which the Norwich people do not look kindly upon because they see themselves as wholly separate. And I lived there for six months and can speak to that. It is not a bedroom community of Hanover, even though many of the adults in Norwich now are employed by the teaching hospital or Dartmouth. So the demographic has shifted, although you still can find some farms, all organic, of course. And so they seem to have the best of both worlds. I talk to people who live in yurts. I talk to people who live in Norwich and don't have indoor plumbing. Um, So you have professionals, you have farmers, you have a real mixture. Yes. And everyone is united in their belief in you know, we're all in this together. One of the Olympians, a summer Olympian, Katie, an 800-1500 runner, um, Andrew Weeding, gave me a quote that I thought summarized the town so well. He said, most people, it's survival of the fittest. In Norwich, it's survival of all of us. Reading this book, it made me want to move to Norwich. And I know somebody wrote a blurb on the back saying, you know, be careful, Norwich. Yeah. Everybody's going to be moving to your town. But it sounds extraordinary. Let's let's get to sort of the where sports and community meet. How have they really encouraged these Olympians? Because yeah. as you said, they have this incredible track yeah. record yeah. of building great athletes without really making them be singularly focused on one sport or their sport. Right. So it starts so early. They have a no-cut recreational league, which I didn't really realize until I started researching this book how increasingly rare that is. So it starts with that. Their parents from a very young age try to temper it by letting them know that being the best isn't everything there is, that it's more important to show good sportsmanship, to be empathetic for those who aren't as good as you, to even recognize that you have a gift that some aspect of this sport comes easy to you and maybe not as easy to others. And um, Hannah told me this great story that what these no-cut leagues did for her was give her a friendship group that she would not have otherwise come in contact with. These girls that she grew up with from kindergarten through sixth grade who would not have made teams, they were not athletically inclined, But she got to know them, and do you know they're her best friends to this day? And when she was in the Olympic bubble and struggling and, you know, around people who were myopically focused on winning and second place is the first loser, these women that she had met in these no-cut leagues were there to pick her up and give her that outside perspective of, Hannah, you're great. We're proud of you that you're even at this level and representing our town and just, you know, chill out and we'll take you to dinner when you get home. And so she said that because of this unconditional support, not based on, you know, how well she was doing, that it enabled her to get over disappointment so much faster than she normally would have. Let's talk about sort of the parenting philosophy. Obviously, you can't generalize for every parent in the town, but how that creates excellence. Because, you know, the big beef these days is parents are too coddling. They're too, almost too supportive, if you could say, toward their children and not 
letting them understand disappointment. Yeah. So how do, how do the parents in this community balance that? Well, and it's tough, and and there are helicopter parents in Norwich, don't get me wrong, and I totally understand how tough it is for parents. It is hard to see your child suffer. It is hard to see your child face disappointment, but the thing with the Norwich parents is they see sports as a piece to the larger puzzle of developing into adulthood, and so they see that there are all these life lessons to be learned, Um, discipline, delayed gratification, teamwork, taking direction well, um, perseverance, persistence, resilience. And so they're really committed. They are supportive, but in a hands-off way. They very much let their kids, their kids are behind the wheel in the driver's seat on this journey. They're riding shotgun. That brings me to my next question, Karen, because I remember when my girls were little, I talked to someone who was a physical education teacher at their school, and I said, gosh, I think my kids are pretty athletic, but I I don't know what to do in terms of sports. Should they be well-rounded and play a lot of different sports, or would you recommend I really focus on mm-hmm. one? And she said, oh, no, I think you should do a lot of different sports. Who knows? My kids might have been Olympians if I hadn't listened to her, Karen. I'm kidding. But I guess the question is, what about this multi-sport approach? Because that is highly unusual. There are so many studies saying that, you know, kids, when your bones and joints are developing, and by the way, they all develop at different rates. So it's not like your joints and bones are all developing together, that if you are just doing one sport, a repetitive motion, it is causing such a glut of overuse injuries, not to mention the emotional, you know, burnout. Um, I was reading about doctors who are saying they're doing Tommy John surgery on 12 year olds now because kids are pitching and pitching and pitching at such a young age. So all the scientific research suggests that a multifaceted approach in sports is for the best. Now, the Norwich kids had no choice because there are certain sports you can't do year-round in Norwich. So you have to change with the seasons. And Julia Crass, the slope-style skier, her coaches in the wake of her really fine performance in Sochi were saying, you have got to go and do fall conditioning with us. Um, We're going to go to South America, New Zealand. You need to be with us. And she said, no, 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 no. I want to lead my team to the soccer state championships, and I'm going to get great conditioning and cardiovascular work that way. And so she supplemented it with her own training. But again, there's that sort of pushback against the what is now known as the system. Well, I was going to ask you about that, Karen, because obviously as a sports writer for the New York yeah. Times, you've covered a whole slew of Olympians. Yes. And how does the approach in Norwich contrast with sort of a typical Olympian? And and what have you gleaned and learned from observing them? So I was really heartened that Michael Phelps blurbed this book, because here he is, a 28-time Olympic medalist. And he was a kid who he would have liked to have done more sports when he was young. He did, I think, play some lacrosse. I think he actually played one year of football, which is crazy to consider. But he got funneled very early into swimming, 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 because 
um, when he was 12 years old, his coach, Bob Bowman, said, you know what, I think you have the talent and the potential to do something that no one's done, but this is what it's going to take. It's going to take training and swimming seven days a week for um, 10 years unending. And so look, his success, you cannot argue with, but a huge piece of it went missing, and that was the personal development. Is Michael Phelps mad at his mom? Is he mad at not being sort of more more multidimensional? And, and tell me about some of the, you don't have to name names, yeah. but at least some of the other athletes who you feel have not benefited from this in the long term. I will tell you, I did a story on Michael back in September when he talked about the anxiety and depression that he's suffered. And there there were times after um, a couple of his most successful Olympics where he was almost suicidal. And that's the piece of it that I think gets lost in the performance side of it. Like, oh, he won eight gold medals and lived happily ever after. But no, it's so much more complicated than that. And so I think if Michael had it to do over again, he would try to find a little more balance where he was developing as a person. He never attended college. Um, he took a couple classes at Michigan, but he told me something that was so sobering, Katie. He said that imagine from the time you're 15, which is when he made his first Olympic team, you are never able to make a first impression on someone because everyone you meet already thinks they know everything about you because you already have this public profile. You've dealt with that. I was going to say, I can relate to that a little bit. And you know what that's like. I think, you know, obviously, I became a public person in my early 30s. But you think about these kids and you think about, I think about life for them after the Olympics. When I see these extraordinary athletes, I think, what happens after this? Because... I wonder, you know, after the cameras leave and the gold medal or the silver or the bronze or no medal, you know, they have these memories, which I'm sure are extraordinary, but I think, gosh, where do you go from here? And if you don't fall into, like, being a commentator on television, I think it must be really hard. You know, Michael... Everybody thought they knew who he was before he knew who he was. And so his self-identity, and as much as he had one, was as Michael Phelps, Olympic champion. So what happens when you are a 28-time medalist and you retire, and now you're not Michael Phelps, Olympic champion, you know, that's in the past. So what do you do to reinvent yourself? And to get back to the Norwich athletes, that's where they really have this figured out in a way that I just wish, I wish every Olympian could read the um, Mike Hall and Jeff Hastings chapter because these were two ski jumpers who made the Olympic team in 84. And they are in their 50s and are still so involved in ski jumping in their community. They work really closely with the high school team in Hanover. Imagine going to a high school ski jumping meet and seeing Jeff Hastings, who finished fourth in 1984. It remains the highest finish by a U.S.-born ski jumper in an Olympics ever. And he's doing the public address. He's announcing. And then at the bottom of the hill, grooming the hill, is Mike Holland, who set a world flying record in 1985 
When you're a teenager and you see two of the best athletes in your sport that this country has ever produced, and they're not acting as if they're better than you, they are in effect serving you. They are making your meat run smoothly. They are making sure the hill is smooth for you. They are doing the public address announcing. What kind of message does that send that you can be an Olympian, but you're still very much a part of the community. And I think it helps the Olympians too, because instead of feeling so isolated when they're done, they're just welcomed back into this cocoon of community that they've always been a part of. What did they end up doing after the Olympics? So Mike works in finance and he said, you know, I had no idea, but he had to raise money to keep his career going because this might be um, this might be a newsflash to people, but ski jumpers do not make much money in the United States. So he was actually getting poorer by continuing his sports. So his dad said, you're going to have to support yourself. You know, I'm not, I'm going to support you in all the emotional ways, but I, it's up to you to finance the sport. So he had to fundraise and do all of this stuff that at the time seemed really onerous. And then he said, oh my gosh, it prepared me so well for my job in finance. You know, I, I can't let you go without talking to you about the community too, and how important this, this is to building really great people, not just great athletes. And there's a woman you talk about who is the librarian of the town named Beth Reynolds. And, you know, the story of how she shapes these young minds I thought was so moving. So she gets to know the kids because they come into the library a lot. She gets to know their interests. And so when they come in, she will suggest books that they might enjoy, knowing what their interests are. Like she'll maybe suggest something that's a little bit outside their comfort zone. And so she's broadening their worlds without them even knowing it. They think they're getting a really cool book from Mrs. Reynolds, you know. They're really excited. And she still keeps in touch with these kids when they come back from college and have their own kids. And there's a lovely postscript, which again, just tells you so much about the DNA of the people in this town. Hannah, in 2010, after she won the gold medal, um, the owner of the general store was so excited, he made up these bumper stickers exalting her event and her gold medal. Well, he made a couple hundred dollars profit and felt terrible, like, I can't keep this profit. This is Hannah's money. So he gives the check to Hannah, who immediately, with no prompting or prodding from anybody, this was her own idea, she marches over to the library with that check, gives it to Beth Reynolds and says, here, I got this money. Could you just use it to buy sports books that you think teenage girls would be interested in or that would, you know, spark their interest in sports. So again, how many athletes do you know would that would have been their first thought of, oh, I just got this unexpected check for a couple hundred dollars. I'm going to take it over to the librarian so she can buy books. <laughs> so nice. But before we go, you mentioned how you were becoming dismayed by the amount of money. In, in sports, but you even said at the level of kids. Yeah. What kind of money are you talking about when it comes to kids in sports? I mean, I knew that at the Olympic level or 
at the professional level, there is just a sports industrial yeah. complex. Oh, but what about so kids? Well. Yeah, that sports industrial complex is perfectly worded. Um, so w- this is what I'm seeing is that sports is becoming, like so many other things in our society, an activity for those who have money. And if you don't have money, you're left out. Um, I went to a swim meet, an age group swim meet last month. This is the very bottom rung of the competitive level, Katie. I saw eight, nine, 10, 11 year olds wearing $250, $300 high tech suits. Um, it's as simple as that. Their parents, however well meaning, thinking like, oh, well, if I buy them the most expensive suits, I want to do everything I can so that they will be successful. But at eight, nine, 10, 11, they should just be learning to A, love the water, love competing get their stroke technique down. I mean, I saw some of these suits, they look like um, they had Sharpay skin because they just could not fill them out, these poor children. But it goes beyond that of just the private coaching and the traveling teams and all of this is so expensive. And, you know, here's the big lie that we probably in the media don't make clear enough. There are far more Olympic athletes living near poverty than there are making millions of dollars. The Lindsays and the Michaels and the Michaelas, they really are the exception, not the rule. There are so many more athletes like Tim Tetro, a combined Nordic um, racer who is from Norwich, who said that one year, the most he ever made in a single year was $28,000 off his sport. And some years he made less than 15,000. So I wish parents could take a step back and go, you know, my kid, if he or she turns out to be the next Michaela Schifrin or Michael Phelps, fantastic. But even if she or he doesn't, there's so many great things that can come from sports. And let's, you know, take a step back. This book is giving parents permission to exhale and to like, rein in the insanity that has overtaken youth sports to where the kids are losing their childhoods, the parents are losing their minds. It doesn't need to be this way. If you wanted to give any town or any family or any community advice, then what would you say is the secret sauce of Norwich that they really could adapt realistically to their parenting and to their attitudes about competition? A communitarian spirit. And boy, in this time of divisiveness and discord, we all could use to be a little more community-oriented and we-oriented as opposed to me-oriented. So all of us, no matter our stature, our position, we all have something that we can give to someone else, whether it's time, money, expertise, even little things. Mike Collin got started in skiing because Jeff Hastings outgrew his jumping skis and gave them to Mike. You know, simple gesture, but look at it, spawned an Olympic career. And parents, I think we need to stop looking at sports as a zero-sum game where for my child to succeed, your child must fail because your child is in the way of my child's success. And realize we're all in this together. And You know, again, you can be competitive, but also remember that at the end of the day, sportsmanship matters. You can help others and still succeed. And in fact, 
a lot of people find a lot more happiness when they get outside of themselves and do something good for someone else. And that, you know, makes them feel better than any metal would. And I think that's the piece of it that Norwich has that I wish that we could take out and spread through communities or at least start the conversation. Are you going to be moving to Norwich, Vermont permanently? No, although I, you know, they probably have, I don't know whether they want to, um, you know, bless me or curse me at this point if I'm bringing all this attention to their town because they're not attention seekers. I remember the first time I talked to Jeff Hastings and Mike Holland separately, they each told me, well, a book, well, I'm happy to help you and talk with you, but I I can't imagine you'll get more than one or two pages. (laughs) They just don't see themselves as extraordinary. They, The town collectively and the individuals in it see themselves as ordinary people living ordinary lives. And maybe that's something we should all take away from it too. Words to live by. Karen Krauss, the book is called Norwich. One Tiny Vermont Town's Secret to Happiness and Excellent. A must-read, this is Katie speaking, I think, for every parent and certainly for people who love sports but also love their kids and want to make sure that they're happy and healthy throughout their lives, not just during one chapter. You can hear more from me throughout the 2018 Winter Olympics on the networks of NBC. Jonathan Hirsch produces The Podium, the official podcast of the Olympic Winter Games, along with executive producer Nishat Kurwa. Extra special thanks to senior producer Jillian Weinberger for producing the heck out of this story. And thanks as usual to my producer, Gianna Palmer, and audio engineer Jared O'Connell. And lastly, thanks to Rebecca Chapman, John Howe, Aileen Sokol, and Tess Quinlan. You can find more episodes of The Podium on Stitcher or Apple Podcasts. You can watch the Winter Olympics on the networks of NBC. And you can stream every event live on NBCOlympics.com and the NBC Sports app. As I mentioned in the break, don't skip our ads, people. You might miss something. We'll be away next week. Come on, give me a break. I need to recover from this trip. But we'll be back to our regularly scheduled programming the week after that. Talk to you soon, everyone. Thanks for listening, as always. Hey everyone, it's Katie Couric, and I want to tell you about one of my new favorite podcasts. It's called A Really Good Cry with the amazing Roddy Devlukia, a plant-based chef, entrepreneur, and now a podcast host who will guide you through a journey of self-discovery, one tear at a time. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Roddy Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleha Mosin. 
And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.